Tonight, if you have your Bible, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 55. As you remember last Sunday night, I did a sort of the first part of a four-part thing about uh, unbelief. Last week I did the first one, Unbelief Blurs the Obvious. Uh, Tonight uh, we're going to start with verse 55, and I've titled this, Unbelief Builds Up the Irrelevant. If you'll look at that uh, passage with me. It is not, is, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? and his brothers, James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters. Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Well, instead of accepting the obvious, the neighbors, the townsfolk, you know, back then people didn't travel, so everybody knew everybody in the town. Uh, how would you feel if somebody that you grew up with maybe went all through grammar and junior high and high school with, and then they became president of the United States? Uh, how would you feel about that? you say, well, uh, that would be a little awkward. Well, think how awkward it would be if you were living back in that time and a fellow that grew up in your same town grew up to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Think how hard it was for them to accept that. I mean, they had, I don't know, I don't guess they played softball, but they played something uh, together, and they did all these things together, and they went to the synagogue every week together, and they knew each other real well, and then all of a sudden, everything that you had studied about in the synagogue all of your life was coming true in this fellow that you grew up with. I mean, think how hard it would be for you to accept that. Well, that's what our text is about uh, tonight. Instead of accepting the obvious and the overwhelming evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, the people of Nazareth focused in on the uh, irrelevant things. Now, Jesus was going around raising people from the dead. He was healing the lame, the blind, the deaf, uh, the folks with leprosy. I mean, he was doing everything. Nobody could do that but uh, somebody from God. That's very, very obvious. And they all knew that. They had all heard about that. They'd seen that. They knew about that. And yet still, they were having all of these problems about accepting Christ as the Messiah. It was indeed surprising to see someone uh, that they had grown up in the same neighborhood uh, with whom they'd gone to synagogue all of his life suddenly come on the scene as the leader of the world. Uh, This was real hard. With no formal training, he hadn't been to seminary, uh, he didn't have any advanced degrees, he, he wasn't accepted by the religious hierarchy. And you know, back in those days, there was a definite hierarchy and everybody kind of fit into that somewhere. And Jesus wasn't in it at all. 
So when he came in, you know, they said, well, you know, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, the Sadducees, they haven't said anything about him. Where does he come off acting like he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Although the Jews had many incomplete and false notions about the Messiah, they did know this. Now, this is very important. From reading the Old Testament, they knew that he was to come to earth as a man. They knew that. They knew that he would have to be born into a family. They knew that. They knew that he was going to have to live somewhere in some community. They knew that. But instead of feeling highly honored, that God had placed his son in Nazareth to grow up as Mary. You know, Mary felt very honored to be his mother. The people of Nazareth were skeptical, were jealous, and were resentful. Now, after Jesus' birth, Joseph began to have normal relations with his wife. Uh, She bore at least four sons, and two daughters. I've always thought it was interesting that they, uh, they just said daughters. Um, you know, back then, the daughters were not very important. And, of course, Jesus changed all of that. He elevated all the women to the highest uh, degree. Mary was a woman of extraordinary godliness. But she was no more divine than any other woman ever born. She even referred to the Lord as the Lord, my Savior. I've asked uh, Frank, if he would, to read that verse. Uh, You might want to mark this in your Bible. It's Luke 1, 47. You might want to mark that. That's an important verse in this regard. Brother? And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. This is uh, Mary speaking. And she's saying... Herself, uh, the Lord, my Savior. Well, that means something when you say that. It affirms her own sinfulness and need of salvation. He was her Savior. Now, theologically, that is very, very important. So you want to you want to know that verse. Joseph had been a carpenter which is the general term for a craftsman who worked with hard material, uh, with uh, hard wood. Uh, He may have also worked with bricks and stones. We don't know that. In any case, he surely built a lot of the houses that these people around there lived in. And he uh, made their windows and their doors and the yokes and the other things that uh, the neighbors in Nazareth needed. He made them for them. And many products of his workmanship were probably still being used in the village. So, I mean, everybody knew Joseph. And they all thought that he was Jesus' father. Joseph was an ordinary laborer like most other men in the village. And Jesus learned carpentry under him and no doubt took over the business after Joseph died. Frank, would you read uh, Mark 6, 3 for us? 
Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Yeah, this is, um, this is another way that they felt. They thought, well, now here's his sister. She was in class with me. And here's his brother. We used to fight on the playground. And yet, uh, he all of a sudden is the Messiah. And they just, they just they couldn't compute that in their brains. The fact that the citizens of Nazareth did not regard Jesus as his family, as being out of the ordinary, completely undercuts the myths that were attributed about bizarre things that happened to him when he was a kid. Uh, there was a story that went all around that when Jesus was walking around as a little boy and a bird had a broken wing, he would pick up the bird and stroke it a couple of times, and then it would just fly off uh, completely healed. Well, these verses that we have read tonight debunk that. That isn't what happened at all. Uh, he wasn't doing those kind of things uh, as a child. Now, there are some books that uh, some people wanted in the Bible that aren't in the Bible that told these kind of stories. And that's the reason that many of those books were not in the Bible because God didn't want them in the Bible. So they weren't in there. The fact that the citizens of Nazareth did not regard Jesus and his family as being out of the ordinary, they thought these are just regular people, completely undercuts uh, these bizarre uh, miracles that I mentioned. Uh, the text completely mitigates against such fabrications. Uh, those are just not true. When he came to earth, Jesus emptied himself of certain divine prerogatives. Now, we don't know what those were. That's never spelled out in Scripture. You know, he could do this and he couldn't do that. He could do this, he couldn't do that. We, we don't know. Uh, we don't know that list. We do know that he was sinless as he was growing up. And you would think, well, all the kids then would know that there was something real, real special about him. Well, evidently not. Because they were so surprised when he came back and he was being hailed as the Messiah. He was willing to take on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Frank, if you'll read uh, Philippians 2.7. But made, him, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. See, he, I don't know if he was trying not to uh, be recognized among men, trying not to be the big show in town as the perfect boy. Um, but that, this all comes about uh, as the uh, people there relate in a strange way to him when he is hailed as the Messiah. Although he was sinless, morally perfect during every minute of his life, his perfection was clearly not the sort that called attention to himself. He didn't want to do that. He didn't want to stand out as a boy. Uh, he wanted 
to grow in, in many ways, and he did. And there were certain times in his life that certain spiritual things happened, as you know. Uh, at his baptism, for instance, uh, many spiritual things transpired. His perfection was clearly not of the sort that called attention to itself or set him apart as strange or as peculiar. To those who knew him as a child and young man, Jesus was simply a carpenter. He was a carpenter's son. It was partly over the commonness of Jesus and his family that the people of Nazareth stumbled. This caused them not to be able to believe. They found it was impossible to accept him as even a great human teacher because he didn't have any of the credentials for that, much less as the divine Messiah. It's tragic that small issues can be used as great excuses for not believing. Now, we can all understand why they felt that at first. But then as they followed him outside of town, and he touched somebody that had leprosy, and they were immediately healed. Then they should have begun to realize that he really was something of God because he could do these miracles that no one had ever done before. He could do things that no one else in the world could do. And, and of course, that uh, certainly should have changed their opinion. Well, um, most church people, uh, uh, people like this think, are hypocrites. You know, if you've got to have a reason for unbelief, what's your reason going to be? Well, this guy came and witnessed to me, and he wore real old-timey clothes. Well, what does that have to do with it? It doesn't have anything to do with it. I was eating lunch with some of our members today, and we talked about Bob Ham for a while. Bob Ham wore the weirdest clothes. He really did. I mean, he wore strange clothes. He really was one of the finest Christians that I have ever known. Uh, he was just a great, great guy. What, what difference does it make what clothes he, he wore? I mean, that's not important. It's not important at all. Well, uh, they might say, well, I don't, uh, I don't like the one that witnessed to me. He was weird. Uh, I think most church people are hypocrites, so I don't want to uh, trust anything that they say. I think the preacher preaches too long, uh, or I think the preacher's too loud, uh, or he's too soft, I can't understand him, or the church is too stuffy, or it's too overbearing or the services are too formal, or they're too informal. They are offended at the slightest things Christians do and construe the insignificant as being important. You know, if you want to find some reasons not to believe, you can find them. You don't have to look very far. But if you want to see Jesus for who he was, for what he did, for what he said, for what he intended to do through the lives of of followers of his, if you you gradually come to know all that, you begin to believe. Uh, 
as a means of escape or self-justification, unbelief diverts attention away from the truth. They just say, well, hey, look at this over here. Look, think about this, you know. When you're out witnessing to somebody, do they say, okay, tell me the next thing? They rarely say that. You know, they, they want to talk about their uncle who was a, a member of the church and was a reprobate. You know, something like this, something totally off of the subjects, something totally uh, unrelated to what they're doing. The genuine seeker may have many questions about the gospel before he's ready to commit himself to Christ, but his sincerity is proven by his willingness to accept a truth when it is presented. You know, there are certain things that we know are true. We know all these miracles that Jesus did. We know all these prophecies in the Old Testament came true. All of them. I mean, that's unbelievable. Who could ever believe that? There's hundreds of, of prophecies. They all came true. It's just it's amazing. Each new ray of light leads us closer to belief. For the confirmed unbeliever, on the other hand, each new truth prompts that person to raise another objection. They say, oh yeah, but what about this? And it's something totally unrelated as you're trying to witness to them. And the argument against the truth pushes him still further away from Christ and accepting the gospel. It is characteristic of unbelief to disguise itself in order to hide their self-satisfaction and refusal to accept the clear evidence about Jesus. I remember when I was a kid, I witnessed to a guy, I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't know hardly anything. I was saved when I was 15, and uh, a man, I was talking to a man one day, and, and he asked me if I was a Christian. I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. And I said, you, you know how things just kind of come out of your mouth that you, that you wished you hadn't said? I said, well, do you think all these people that go to church are fools? I just, you know, I was about 16 years old. I didn't know what to say and what not to say. He didn't know how to answer that. You know, he just looked at me. Uh, you know, some things ought to be fairly obvious by this time. You know, there have been hundreds and hundreds of millions of people that have put their life on the line for Christ. All these people over uh, around Iraq that are getting their throats slit and everything for being a Christian. I mean, there's got to be something to it or they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't take those stands if they didn't believe it with all of their heart. They'd say, well, let me think about that for a few years. You know, they, they would not take a strong stand for Christ unless they believed it with all of their heart. And they certainly have. The people of Nazareth dismissed Jesus on the basis of having known him when he was a child and knowing his family as ordinary citizens of the community. They allowed pride, jealousy, resentment, embarrassment, and a host of other petty feelings to fill their hearts and to become barriers to their salvation. 
Now, that's just the truth of it. Well, here's the third uh, of the four uh, barriers uh, to belief. Unbelief blinds us to the truth. Uh, Look at verse 57. And they took offense at Jesus. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now, the word uh, for took offense, took offense is one word in the Greek language. Uh, took offense has the basic idea of, of someone being caused to stumble or being tripped up. Uh, Jesus' friends and his former na- neighbors were kind of tripped up. They took offense at what he said, at his teachings, things like that. They were offended by his ordinary background, by the commonness of his family, by the limits of his formal training, by his lack of religious standing, and many other irrelevant or secondary issues. They made up some issues that weren't really issues. We have no full account of what Jesus taught at these two times when he spoke in the synagogue in Nazareth. We don't know what all he said. Um, Both times, he highly offended the people. We do know that. Uh, He unmasked, I'm sure, their hypocrisy by exposing their wicked desire to see him do some miracles. They said, well, why don't you do some miracles? You know, it was the show. You know, they wanted to see him. You know, do do some miracles. Like, if he was a magician, do some tricks. You know, if he was a comedian, tell some jokes. You know, that's what they said to him. And he was highly offended by that. He probably talked to them about their sinfulness and their need to repent of their sin. They became antagonistic and they took it says they he they took offense at him. In other words, he really made them mad. Because of their unbelief blinded them to the truth that he taught. Until a person is willing to uh, plow up the hard ground of their heart uh, they're not going to be ready to trust in the Lord and, and follow him to uh, confess their sins, to forsake their sins, uh, to become a believer. Uh, those folks will be offended by the gospel until a person comes repenting. You know, you have, I've said this many times, you have to know you're lost before you can be saved. I know that sounds funny, but that's true. You have to understand, you know, a lot of people think, well, I was born in America, I'm a Christian. Or I was born into the Smith family. All of us Smiths are Christians. You know, all of this, all of, you know, people say things like that all the time. It's not right, it's not true. You have to individually come before Christ and confess your sins and place your faith and your trust in Him in order to be saved. Those are the steps that you have to take individually. You don't do it corporately. You don't do it as a huge family. You don't do it as a nation. You don't do it as a state. You do it individually. Well, uh, unless you do that, the gospel is hidden. Uh, 
from you. And the blessing of the gospel is lost to you. Again, Jesus reminded the people of Nazareth of a well-known proverb. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown or in his own household. It's difficult, he says, by telling that proverb that was well-known way back then. It's difficult to uh, uh, change the thought patterns of those that have watched you grow up uh, as a neighborhood kid to later accept you as a community leader or as the President of the United States and most certainly as the Savior of the world. Uh, Even when the man is personally liked, it is not easy for him to gain the respect that an outsider of the same capabilities would have. I don't know how many of you have heard this before, but you know who an expert witness is? It's somebody from over 50 miles away. Uh, That's who it is. Uh, When I was in seminary, I had a friend that was a lawyer, and uh, he did some church cases, and he called me uh, as an expert witness. And I went and was in some trials and things, and I would go through all this to say about two sentences. You know, they would call on me, and I'd stand up and say my two sentences, and I'd sit down and You know, I was an expert witness. I was supposed to know. And uh, that's what this is saying. You know, if if Jesus had been from somewhere else, he would have been accepted a lot better. You know, they would have thought, well, gee whiz, this guy, he's really something. He can heal people. Uh, He can raise the dead. This, This really might be the Messiah. But when it's somebody that you know, somebody that you grew up next door to, It's very, very hard uh, for them to gain the respect that an outsider uh, would initially have. Jesus' brothers, you know, his brothers uh, didn't believe him at first. Did you know that? They did not believe in him at first. It took a period of time, and later they did become believers. All right, let's look at verse 58. And he, did not, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, I think this verse has been misconstrued uh, many times, and I want to talk to you about it. Some of, the Jesus, some of the Jesus miracles were done in, res- in response to personal faith. Somebody came, and they had faith, and Jesus worked with them and led them to salvation. But many others, perhaps most of the people that were there, uh, were done regardless of whatever the situation was. Uh, All the miracles were done to strengthen the faith of those that were around. That's why Jesus did the miracles. You know, because it was an obvious witness and it was an obvious thing that would attract people and cause people to believe. Although God can perform miracles... Where there is no belief, he chose not to perform them where there was hard and willful unbelief. You know that uh, passage in the scripture that talks about uh, shaking the dust off of your shoes? 
Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you felt like, you know, uh, people here don't want to hear what I have to say, so I'm going to leave, and uh, they just uh, leave? Well, that was the way it was here. Jesus, it says, did not do many miracles there. That was not that Jesus didn't have supernatural power. He could have done a million miracles if he wanted to. What they wanted was a show. They wanted him to get up and do some miraculous things. They wanted a show. And he said, I'm not going to do that. And for that reason, uh, he did not do many miracles in that place. For those who refused to believe, his miracles had no spiritual value at all. He would not perform them in order just to entertain. Unbelief cannot recognize the works of God because it cannot accept the truth of God. That's a very, very important statement. Let me say that again. Unbelief cannot recognize the works of God because it cannot accept the truth of God. Well, tonight, I don't know if there's anybody in the house that has never trusted in Christ. I do know that in every service, there are folks that can respond to the call of the gospel in one way or another. Perhaps tonight you are here and you are lost, and certainly we would want you to be saved this very moment. If you're here in the house and you uh, haven't joined the church yet, you've been coming for a while, Maybe you'd like to come and join with us and serve with us. I was so glad that Dave came this morning. Um, we'd had some good talks, and this morning he came forward taking a strong stand for Christ. Maybe you would like to come tonight. Maybe there's another decision that you'd like to make. You know, we don't want to limit what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart and life. If there's some decision that you'd like to make, come and make it and and take a, a strong stand for him as you do it. I'll be standing down here at the front waiting on you to come. Let's stand together as we sing.